taking on some lead investors for uh, the later rounds, which we're not able to to lead ourselves. So ultimately, what we're looking for is number one, by far and away, it's founders, our feeling of them. And an interesting question that we like to ask and have our venture associates ask themselves after they meet with the founder is, Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we have a very special guest on today. He's the Chief Investment Officer at Elkstone, where he builds the firm's investment platform. He leads the firm's investment community and multi-asset investment portfolio. Elkstone is an incredible family office managing the wealth of its principles, with a focus on real estate, venture, lending, and hedge funds. And we have an incredible guest where he's able to unpack the incredible thesis that focuses on the Dublin, Ireland area and the exciting stuff that's going on in that area. He's also former head of trading and hedge fund manager who specializes in niche, inefficient commodity markets. He has been published in macroeconomics research. He's been featured as a thought leader piece on Forbes, reaching in major industry, uh, major industry publications, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and the Financial Times. Please welcome the chief investment officer, Elkstone, the one and only Carl Rogers. Hi there, day, Carl. Rogers. Hi there, day, Carl. Good. Thanks, Christian, and thanks for the invite to come on. Come on with you. Man, I'm looking forward to this conversation because Man, I'm I'm mention, this conversation what I mentioned, I found interesting mention, is you guys really focus on the incredible hub of Ireland and Dublin area. And I want to ask real before because a lot of our audience are not familiar with the incredible. Synergistic innovation that's going on over there. So give us kind of the foundation so and let's build upon it. What, what the excitement going on? And you guys are the tech hub and the excitement over there in, in uh, Europe. Yeah, it's interesting. So for a little bit of background, I spent nearly 10 years of my career over in North America. And one of the reasons for that is because there wasn't a huge amount of opportunity from a front office investment perspective back then. Dublin and Ireland was really known as a middle office financial hub where, you know, asset managers would open up an office here. Um, but really all the decision making would still happen in the likes of London and New York. Now, that has changed a little uh, on the back of Brexit. Uh, one of the big changes there is that uh, UK asset managers have uh, lost their EU marketing passport and therefore do have to open up. Um, front office operations within Ireland or another EU country, um, Ireland being the only uh, English-speaking one, uh, to avail of that EU marketing passport. So we've seen a little bit of inflow of more uh, front office investment-related uh, roles, but it's still relatively new. Outside of kind of direct front office investments, it really is uh, quite a tech hub and a, and a medical hub. Um, you know, being English-speaking with the skilled workforce, um, you know, there's, I think there's 10 out of 10 uh, of the largest tech companies have their European headquarters here. Nine out of 10 of the largest um, medical companies have their European headquarters here. So there's a, there's a lot of very, very large companies that require skilled labor that's set up in Ireland. Ireland's one of the grass, fastest growing European countries from a GDP perspective. And um, the automatic connector with, with the with the US being the nearest to it and, and English speaking as well. So there really is quite a lot going on within Ireland um, beyond beyond tourism and, and Guinness, of course. 
<laughs> of course. And so what what makes what do you think makes it a breeding ground for an incredible hub in regards to medical as well as technology? Like you mentioned, obviously the incredible high level incredible high level excitement as well as just the the talent pool that you have access to. But also just because it is a it sounds like the government obviously really helps establish the the tech hub, if you will. Yeah, in, in, in a couple of different ways, right? So there's one from a corporate tax perspective. Corporate tax within Ireland is very low, so uh, it incentivizes international companies to come on over. But then on the other side of it as well, in terms of requiring skilled labor, right? Irish citizens are able to go through third-level education for more or less free. It's a very, very low nominal amount. You know, I, I did my undergrad over in the state, so I can certainly speak to uh, the cost of education um, at a third level over in the States. And it's kind of night and day. So every everybody within Ireland can go through what's called primary and secondary school, the, the equivalent of elementary and high school over in the States and go through all the way through college or university um, more or less free. So what it, what it means is that there's a very, very skilled labor force over in Ireland. Combine that with the fact that it's, um, that it's English speaking, that it connects both America and Europe, uh, as well as uh, the corporate tax incentive, um, it, it becomes a bit of a no-brainer for, for some multinational companies to set up over here requiring that kind of skilled workforce. That's awesome. And so when you're looking at awesome. leveraging so a lot of your LPs and working with your LPs, I was talking to someone in Italy and their VC, because the environment is just not the same, like here in the West, in the US, where you have a lot of high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals, and you can leverage a lot of their wealth to you know infuse capital in the VC side of things. With the founders, do you find that same thing with you know Dublin, Ireland? Or do you, you know, have access to a lot of club and a pool of, of high net worth and high net worth individuals to infuse that capital back into the VC and the hedge fund world, the real estate? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we started off just investing our own private capital and we were building a portfolio of venture companies on the back of that. But about six or seven years ago now, uh, in an effort to democratize access to venture investing, we opened up a club uh, and through that club, we enabled kind of co-investors, your high net worth individuals, um, you know, professional services, etc., to be able to come in and build up their own direct early stage venture portfolio in line with ours. So as we source, analyze and want to invest into a company, we then open up that same company to, to the club um, and they can invest into it at the same stage uh, as us. We, you know, haven't. Uh, put on a fee to join the club. There's no management fee within within the club up, up to this point as well. So um, it's a bit of a, a no-brainer, for lack of a better term, to, uh, to to join in. And I'd say that club has organically grown over the years, naturally by about 30 people each year. And we're, we're sitting at maybe about 250, 275 club members uh, total that's been able to partake in around a portfolio of 50 companies, which has had an, uh, an incredible track record, uh, strong IRR, three unicorns, two we were in since seed stage. So um, now access to those type of portfolio companies have opened up to um, the, the high net worth community in Ireland, where e even if they, you know, had a big liquidity 
liquidity event themselves and they're sitting on 10, 20, 50 million plus. Just because you have capital doesn't mean that you have the sourcing channels and the infrastructure to be able to carry out the due diligence to build out a direct portfolio. So um, what we're doing there through um, our, our infrastructure and our track record um, within the Irish ecosystem is, is really uh, enabling that fairly rare uh, ability to get involved uh, uh, at a direct early stage point. Well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on because well, just like Silicon Valley, there were a few individuals in the VC or the private equity world where they were the ones that cleared the path for everybody else. And you guys are doing that Clearing the path in Ireland, right? Just to share a few numbers, 100 million plus Ireland's largest seed fund, 100 plus, like you mentioned, three unicorn back at seed stage, some of your background, 250 plus clients, 3,200 plus properties delivered, 1,200 apartments and 2,000 houses. That's probably changed since last time, obviously, the update. My point is, is that you guys are on the forefront and you cleared the path for obviously other investors and you created this amazing ecosystem and club. My question is, during this journey, Carl, what have been some hurdles or maybe just buy-in or certain things you had to overcome as Elkstone to be able to build that foundation and that amazing ecosystem you currently have? Because you guys are on the forefront and clearing the path, specifically in the Ireland Dublin area. Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. You know, it started off um, smaller ticket sizes, our own capital going into direct deals. But as we grew our sourcing, as we grew our infrastructure, as we grew our track record, um, you know, we wanted to span the island of Ireland and really cover that ecosystem. And um, about two, two and a half years, uh, two and a half years ago, maybe three at this stage, we wanted to open up our first fund, uh, and we came into. Um, uh, a tax and, and finance hurdle. Uh, so we, we led the charge in terms of um, a, a lobby to change the legislation to incentivize and enable more investment into the Irish ecosystem and, and Ireland Inc. That was a that was a two year process. Um, the change in legislation came through. It essentially expanded what's called the EIS tax system over here. It'd be the equivalent of EIS over in the UK. And on the back of that, we were able to open up uh, our first fund, that 100 million fund that, that you mentioned, which we opened and closed last year. Within that fund, importantly, there are only two institutional LPs. So one is Enterprise Ireland, a kind of quasi-Irish government agency um, that does a lot of investing within the venture space. And the other one is the Irish Sovereign Wealth Fund, because we align with one, one of their dual mandates of you know, impacting um, the Irish ecosystem and trying to increase the economic value of it. So there are only two LPs. Everyone else, every other LP is, you know, either a high net worth individual, an entrepreneur that we know, founders of our current portfolio companies. And we really wanted to be purposeful about this because we want to build out a network that that can help our portfolio companies and um, and really provide access and education for this vintage of entrepreneurs. Um, they can go and get advice from the previous vintage of entrepreneurs within Ireland and fingers crossed, continue to create more jobs, 
within Ireland um, and really make it a hub. We'd love to see more and more unicorns come to the fold and avoid situations like what I ran into when I first started my, my career. I had to move abroad. We want to be able to keep the talent at home. Uh, it's amazing. Through my travels, you speak to Irish abroad and they're incredibly successful, uh, you know, on average. And uh, unfortunately, they're providing uh, that success, um, you know, outside of Ireland. And it would be amazing to be a, a key cog uh, in terms of keeping that talent home, increasing the economic value of the island of Ireland, not just the Republic of Ireland. And, um, you know, we're we're in early innings there, but we're really excited about the, the prospect. Well, that's why I think it's so fun to well, see someone like yourself so being able to like run point guard and, and clear the path. And, and you had to work with the government to create some sort of legislation so that it facilitates entrepreneurship and innovation in that area, which is really awesome. Let's dive into your investment thesis a little bit because you you are the one that runs through a lot of that. You talk about venture, lending, hedge fund, and specifically real estate, those four different verticals. Those Carl, since you are the one that's Carl, the chief investment officer the of those thesis, how do you look at that? Is there like, okay, you have X amount of dollars and you deploy a percentage in each one? Or is it more of, depending upon at the macro level, where you want to deploy that capital, infuse that capital, you spend a little bit more on real estate versus VC, vice versa. How do you guys look at it holistically in those different verticals or those different buckets? Yeah, it's a good question. So if, if I take just a step back and really talk about Elkstone as a whole, there's two different components. One is Elkstone as an alternative investment manager. And within that, you know, we, we do our venture investments, we do our real estate investments, we do some lending and, and, and we invest in our hedge funds as well. But outside of that, alternative investment management business. We also run a private investment office where we provide wealth and investment management to many of kind of Ireland's and international entrepreneurs and high net worth individuals. So when you look at wealth management, I like to use a, a sports analogy. It's the manager player analogy. So within wealth management, you know, it's, it's somebody coming in. It's like the manager, it's the coach coming in saying, I want to play this style, this strategy, I have this philosophy. I want my defenders to have these attributes, my midfielders to have these attributes, and my forwards to have these attributes. And then I, as the manager, go out and I find the players that match those attributes and those players execute my game plan on the pitch for me. So that manager of the club is the wealth management function. And the investment management, and there are multiple investment managers, are the chosen players that, that match the attributes of what the manager is looking for. So when it comes down to portfolio construction and choosing investments, Elkstone runs that manager, but, but Elkstone are also a potential player within venture, within early stage venture, within real estate, Irish real estate, within global hedge funds, and within some direct lending. But it's all about where, from a wealth management perspective and from a tactical asset allocation perspective, um, where does it all fit in? And should Elkstone be the chosen player within venture? And where do we want to focus that? Because, yeah, absolutely, we cover the Irish ecosystem. We have a fantastic track record. And therefore, we want maybe some percentage to go in there. But we also have to recognize from a total portfolio perspective by doing investment with and through Elkstone, you know, it's primarily primary rounds, early stage, 
um, sector agnostic with a pretty strong, strong concentration within Ireland and then Europe and a little bit of the US. And therefore, we want other players to, to augment and balance out the venture exposure as well. Maybe one that's focused on the US and mid-stage. Um, maybe one that's focused on, on late stage or a particular uh, industry or area. So, yeah, it certainly all comes down to what's the game plan. Let's build out this portfolio. Let's put a tactical asset allocation overlay out on an entire portfolio. And then let's go out and try to find the players, the investment managers that we believe are a very strong match to the overall strategy of the manager and start executing a portfolio from that perspective. I like that whole strategy of bringing like everything together. It's a very interesting play in the way you think about it. Let's dive a little bit further into real estate since you guys do focus a lot on the real estate world. The real estate market in that area is tremendously different. The way you think about it, the way you look at it, is tremendously different than the West, right? And same thing with you know California real estate is drastically different from Florida real estate. So the way you look at it and play the game is tremendously different. So when you're looking at playing the real estate game in Dublin, Ireland, are you focusing more on commercial or more on apartments or are you more of multifamily? How does that drastically, the paradigm and the perception, how is that drastically different in the West and the way you think about it in regards to your investment thesis? Yeah, so I think, look, real estate as a whole, you know, you know, it's fairly similar across uh, the globe. There's three main stages to it. There's the planning, there's the development, and then there's the asset management. So, you know, that's the general life cycle within uh, within real estate, regardless of where uh, regardless of where you're located or investing globally. So, within Elkstone specifically, uh, we don't run a fund here. Everything is deal by deal, private private capital. Um, we have recently signed our a co-investment agreement with, with Harrison Street, which is fantastic. Um, I'll talk about that maybe in, in a little bit, but yeah, we're on the value creation side, the value add side. So, you know, you go find a piece of land, you then take on the planning risk, um, you know, and, and the riskiness of real estate kind of moves across that life cycle. The riskiest stage is planning followed by the development, followed by kind of uh, asset management. So we're primarily focused on on planning and development. And, you know, we've, able, we're, we've been able to be opportunistic um, over the years. However, our focus has gone more and more into two subsectors. So this is really where the, the differentiator comes, you know, whether it's your multipurpose or multifamily over in, in the US, which seems to be uh, high demand at a subsector level within real estate within Ireland and the supply demand setup within Ireland. There are two subsector areas that we're concentrating our efforts on, uh, which is the build to rent and the purpose built uh, student accommodation side. Um, you know, it's let me at, at a macro level, at a high level, there's just a structural supply issue over in Ireland. Um, we need units, we need houses, we need apartments, we need student accommodation, full stop. Um, on the PBSA side, the purpose-built student accommodation side, when you look at the demand side of the equation, there's been a little bit of an uplift there. Uh, and again, that's coming on the back of uh, Brexit. 
So European students through the EU Erasmus programme, a lot of them used to go over to the UK and England and spend their one year there. However, after due to Brexit, it's no longer part of the EU Erasmus programme. Again, Ireland is the only other English-speaking country, so a lot of students that used to go over to the UK are now coming over to, to Ireland. So you have you know, a, an interesting story on the demand side, an increase in the demand, and you just have a structural supply issue at the same time. Uh, the country needs units, and, uh, uh, and as long as there's the need, then there's an opportunity. That's awesome. So there's this, this awesome. fragmentation so this of supply and demand, which obviously gives an demand, opportunity gives for an Dublin, opportunity Ireland, Dublin Ireland because, of course, there is a massive, Dublin massive Ireland growth trajectory. Here, here in the West, the IRS as well as... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, because I was just going to say, not to, we, we don't, we certainly don't focus just on, on, on Dublin. It, it's the whole island of Ireland. And within real estate, we're very active in the four main hubs if you if you look north south east and west the the largest cities there so cork down south galway out west dublin on the east and belfast up north we have assets and projects going on in all four of those areas so we're certainly not uh, just focused on dublin in actual fact within the pbsa the purpose-built student accommodation space uh, our focus is primarily on galway and belfast um, we do have some assets in dublin of course but no, we're, we're, we're all about the island of Ireland and, and, and not just Dublin, Ireland. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks for giving me more of that, okay, that Ireland picture. That Here in the West, I was just going to bring this up. There the is the IRS where they incentivize the wealthy to deploy capital in this because there are certain things like depreciation for tax advantage purposes. My question is, is how has that kind of elaborated into the Ireland ecosystem in regards to deploying capital and working with the high net worth to use the same, very same, similar tactics for, like you mentioned, infusing the capital into that supply-demand fragmentation that you're seeing in Ireland. Yeah, it wouldn't be the same, which again is kind of one of the, one of the problems, especially when you look at the planning stage, which tends to be the riskiest stage. You know, you're going to struggle to get funding from pillar banks, etc., and therefore, you do need private capital. You do need high net worth uh, individual capital in order to help fund because, of course, planning is the first stage of supply. You can't bring units on uh, until you get through a planning process. And then there's the development side of things as well. Now, when you get into the development side of things, depending on the size of the project, of course, you know there's more avenues and access to funding available for those larger scale projects, which is what we're moving into. But still on the planning side, it's very, very difficult. And ultimately, if you don't have the sources of funding or funding incentivized, it's gonna be very, very difficult to get through that stage. And really, that's where private capital and, and the likes of players like Elkstone is very important because without planning and without people being able to put private capital into those types of projects, you know, you, you're not going to get supply if you don't have development and you're not going to get development if you don't have planning permission. This is so good for our audience and myself to understand, so the to myself understand the opportunities outside of the U.S. as well as just US. the different way you think as about well this in regards to seeing there's a massive, massive opportunity. When we're looking at 
uh, the real estate at, side of things, you uh, mentioned obviously um, student, uh, student housing. Okay. Do you also focus okay. on you also know, focus on healthcare, you know, uh, real estate, uh, larger uh, commercial estate, properties? Uh, larger commercial Do you see like a value add in those circumstances, like or again, is that just a different investment thesis? Again, is that just a different investment thesis? It, it, yeah, it's not necessarily a different investment thesis. It's just a different area of concentration when you're looking at where do we believe is the are the bigger opportunities because capital is limited, right? Of, of course, you could come with a playlist of a hundred different projects spread across PBSA, build to rent, commercial, etc. But it ultimately comes down to uh, capital is limited, and therefore, you know, where is the best place to put it? So. We do historically own some commercial buildings, and uh, we own a shopping center out uh, out west, over over in Galway. Um, and we recently looked at a, a different commercial building as well. So we're certainly not saying no to it. One of the nice things about private capital and not running a fund is that you're not tied down to a very strict single mandate and therefore we have the ability to be quite opportunistic. So what I would say is at the core we believe that built to rent and purpose-built student accommodation because of the supply and demand dynamics within this country is the optimal place to be putting capital in. But at the same time, one can be opportunistic and continue to look at uh, commercial assets, look at how we can add value. One of our, one of our commercial assets, um, it's a shopping center, we ended up taking some of the, the car park and we just got planning approval for student accommodation on the side of it as well. So, uh, of course, if we are in the asset game, as opposed to the planning or development side, we're always looking to add value and manage the asset better to, to increase the yield that's coming from from the asset. Okay, that makes more sense in regards to one of okay, that makes you see all these different verticals, you see all these different industries, and you see the opportunity as the highest in, in the student housing. That's why, obviously, infusing capital in that regard, which is really cool. I want to dive into a little bit of the VC now because you mentioned there's very industry agnostic, but you really focus on the tech and medical because overall there's a lot of talent acquisition there, which is really awesome. So, with that being said, you mentioned also you focus on pre seed pre rep, Series A, before Series A. So, when you're looking at these so, i would imagine there's a lot everybody's these, looking for money now and you really have to filter those and find the winners out of those and you've obviously had three unicorns in ireland which is really incredible results so what are you looking for i know i've talked to other vcs and they really emphasize the importance of the founder themselves but also maybe the the concept of the business concept as well so let's dive into that i want to understand how you look at it and alk stone how they filter through that process through that process. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to set the scene, um, as you mentioned, we're early stage investors. So generally, we like our first check to go in at seed or pre-seed, and the latest would be kind of pre-A or, or A. So we are certainly focused on that early stage. As you mentioned, we are sector agnostic, and within our portfolio of 50 or so companies, we've everything from healthcare to medical, strength and conditioning, training, prop tech, uh, AI, etc. Um, so ultimately, when you're looking at that early stage, yeah, you're looking at the founders, you know, um, do we believe that they have the technical expertise? Do we believe that they have the network and 
really importantly, do we believe that they have the ability to execute on the game plan? Because in the early stage, you don't necessarily have product market fit. You don't necessarily have uh, a proven business model where it comes just about scaling it. Um, it, you're really talking earlier on and because of that, because you don't have those signals, those trade signals that, that come from product market fit and, and proven business model, you're looking for hungry founders that have the technical expertise that, um, you know, they're going to require some help and that's where we come in as well. We're very founder focused. We really try to open up our network and, and help the founders um, whenever we can. We put on founder mentor events. We utilize the family office network that we have at a global scale to to, to really help the, the companies in their earlier stage. We help set up their boards, provide some governance and then ideally also help kind of reach into our, our bag of venture relationships and venture capital relationships and help to try to bring on some lead investors for uh, the later rounds, which we're not able to, to lead ourselves. So ultimately what we're looking for is number one, by far and away, it's founders are feeling of them and an interesting question that we like to ask and have our venture associates ask themselves after they meet with the founder is would i like to work for them right if the venture associates come away and say wow you know they really knew their stuff um they were high energy they had a solid head on their shoulders we think they can execute yeah i'd definitely work for that founder that's a question that we that we like to prompt as well to try to get a, a gauge of um of the founder themselves. Other areas, you know, we look for not necessarily tech, but tech enabled. We like Capital Light, it facilitates, um, you know, uh, uh, quicker growth and global growth. And so, although we are looking for Irish founders and Irish companies, um, you know, we're certainly looking for a, a product or a company that can scale globally and scale relatively quickly. And when you look at, you know, more, more like software versus real assets, real assets tend to be very capital intensive in terms of their scalability uh, and therefore we've leaned away from that area and do prefer um you know tech enabled and, and capital light to facilitate that, that that scaling but ultimately it comes down to it comes down to the founders the ability to execute one way that i call it, i don't know christian do you play poker a little bit yeah a little bit yeah. okay so one way that I like to say it is, look, you know, Texas hold them um, because you're you're investing in companies at such an early stage. You know, I like to use the Texas hold them, right? We, we, we get two cards face down and we can see those two cards, but then there's another five cards to come, you know, and that could change the way that your two cards are looked at. So uh, based on the information that we have in this early stage, um, you know, there's some of the criteria that we look for, but we understand it's it's evolving and situations can always be quite fluid and it's not just down to you know the product it's the synergy between the founder or founders um and as a company progresses you know the next card comes right the next three cards and then there's the river and then the and then there's the fifth card and as you're getting this new information you need to uh, reevaluate your hand and see um, you know, we want to be more than just capital. We want to be very founder friendly and we want to open up our network and help wherever we can. So as new information comes, um, we, we look to see where and how we can help. 
Well, I'm so glad we talked about this because we've talked well, so a lot on this podcast about the front end filters. But I think it's really important to navigate, and I love what you mentioned, where just a Texas Hold'em kind of analogy, where it was like, hey, you know what? As you bring in more cars and you know release more cars available, then all of a sudden that data and the way you look at your cars are tremendously different. And that's the same way that you look at your company. As the feedback loop establishes, then it really helps you start saying, okay, hey, Really where we were a year ago is drastically different where we are now and where we need to look at. So let's kind of navigate through that, Carl. When you're having these conversations, you obviously say you're very founder-focused, which is awesome. You have incredible Rolodex of family offices, of VCs, a lot of resources you bring when you align yourself with these, these founders. When there are those tough conversations, Carl, where it's like, hey, you know what? We deployed a lot of money. A lot of capital lot towards of you. Money, We've helped you, but we haven't you. seen those haven't maybe seen positive those EBITDA, or they haven't grown, or they haven't gone to go to market. They put a lot of money back in R and D. Like there's certain red flags that are happening in that relationship. What do you guys do to make sure? Hey, you know what? This opportunity is not the best. Maybe we need to infuse our time, attention, and resources to other companies that are producing a good return. That are producing, and we're seeing some really good results. How do you navigate that? How do you navigate that? Yeah, absolutely. Every funding round, if we just bring it back to that Texas Hold'em analogy, um, let's just call it the first check-in. We had the two cards face down, so that's the information that we, that we have. And both well, things progress. The, the company progresses. Now they're at the next funding stage, and you know we have the decision to make whether we follow our, our money or not. And you know it's really important that. Um, you know, good money doesn't follow bad money. Every single time we make an initial investment, we always really like it. But, um, you know, new information can come. And, you know, as a rule of thumb, roughly 50% of companies that you invest into, you know, will likely go to zero as is how the venture game works. So, you know, deaths within the portfolio aren't uncommon. And even when you're looking at a fund versus direct investing, there's always, a, from a portfolio construction perspective, there's always a portion of capital that's held back for follow-ons as well. As you get through the initial portfolio, you start to see who the emerging winners are, and then you want to follow your good money after, uh, after good money as opposed to good money after bad money. So although we always take a, at least an observer seat on the, on the board to stay very close to the companies and really try to, to, to help them where there is a resource for them whenever they need something. You know, you, usually they, they need you for negative news as opposed to positive news, but we're, we're always there to help. And then one of the other tools that we and all venture funds or, or, or private investors have is the ability to further support what we believe are the emerging winners when it comes down to it. And for many of our companies, we absolutely did our follow-ons at the, the A, the B, the C, the D, and then there were other firms that we just felt like putting our money in a follow-on wasn't the best use of that capital for us and the other club members as well. And they're the decisions that you need to take as, a, as an active investor, an active portfolio manager. and. Um, you know, the, the, the club members that we have that co-invest with us, um, you know, understand this and put their trust into us as well to, to make the appropriate decision with theirs and ours best interest at heart because we're all financially aligned. We all invest into the same thing. 
But that's what I find so interesting about human psychology because when you're down this path and maybe you've spent a lot of money with that founder and you've had that relationship for a year, year and a half, two years, you know, it's that, um, it's a concept of like, being able to it's cut that cost like, very quickly and that isolate that because you can see the winners, but also it's that belief that that own that own psychology that we think, oh, you know what? If we just put more money into this, think, oh, it's not what? working. Then we want to help them produce and create. But at the end of the day, it's really having to have that discipline and that filter and say, hey, we've gone this far. We haven't hit the KPIs. We haven't hit those hurdles, and be able to you know take those chips off the table and then double down on the chips that are producing and play that game, which is really nice. Carl, I want to ask you also, when you're looking at, you know, scaling these companies, okay, I'm curious, you mentioned this previously, there are certain countries that obviously are very, very consumable, you know, consumable, okay, and West and the U.S., we love to consume shit all the time. So my point is, is when you're looking at so going to market strategy, at, you obviously hit Ireland naturally because that's kind of closest neighbor right there. You guys are in the same country. You also like to hit the U.S. and say, hey, what is our go-to-market in the U.S.? Because, again, we know the profit margins and the opportunity of scale is high. I'm not saying like the West is the golden ticket. I'm just saying that you look at other external countries outside of Ireland to say, hey, this VC has the trajectory of really being able to scale beyond Ireland because you understand that that margin and and growth. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's natural, even from a pure numbers point of view, you know, to put it into perspective, 1% of the U.S. population. So if only 1% of the U.S. bought your product, bought your service, that's the more or less the equivalent of the entire country of Ireland. Right, so from, from an opportunity perspective, uh, of course, when you're looking to scale, you're looking to get to as many people uh, as possible. You know, we have some portfolio companies that, that are moving into the U.S. And, you know, to, to give an example as well, we recently uh, invited a few portfolio companies for a dinner um, with the U.S. ambassador to Ireland. So we, we went to their office. We had um, two successful founders Irish founders at the at the dinner as well that were able to speak um, about their experience about moving into the US and some lessons learned there and you know I think there were maybe six or seven portfolio company founders that we brought as well who go to the US as part of the strategy as well and you know that's a phenomenal value add that we've been able to bring our portfolio companies and, and really try to open up doors for them we're growing relations with um, Ireland and, uh, and the US. I know that you saw a recent LinkedIn post uh, where some of the team were, were went over and met President Biden as well. So Ireland-US is naturally uh, a strong and important relationship uh, for us. Um, and then at the same time, we have another portfolio company called Output Sports there in the strength and condition uh, space. America is natural for them, and I can speak to this because I, I, I originally went over to the U.S. on a tennis scholarship, so I did the whole NCAA thing and, and understand firsthand how big sports is and, um, you know, even just walking around the high schools, seeing the infrastructure, the stadiums, the the quality of the fields and pitches. And, you know, I remember walking around thinking, how is everybody not a professional athlete when you grow up with, with this kind of infrastructure um, and the kind of money that, that goes into it? 
But, you know, we spoke with the family office that we know over in the U.S., a, a former professional sports owner, um, you know, to see if any doors could be opened up to, um, you know, U.S. professional franchises or, or, or some of the large colleges to, uh, to help allow us get, get access and, and a pitch in there. Uh, for that portfolio company. So yeah, it's extremely important, the network that's been opened up. It's one of the things that we say within venture. It's more than just capital. You're a strategic partner as well. And uh, hopefully if you're doing your job right, firms want you to be uh, on their cap table because of all the value add that you're able to provide. And we're in a really fortunate position having invested our own private capital and being very active in real estate, being very active in venture, etc., uh, that we've built up a very sophisticated family office and venture capital network. We're an LP, as an example, in 10 to 15 external venture funds as well, similarly to grow our network, to get access to deal flow, um, to be able to lean on the expertise of some industry specialists, etc. So we certainly want to open that up to um, you know the the deserving uh, companies that, that that we invest into. The power of collaboration, the power of collaboration, power which is collaboration, awesome. You know, really seeing the network effect awesome. in, you know, in really effect. Network when effect we're talking about ESG, we talked about this offline a little bit, Carl. And I find this a very interesting environment right now because there's a lot of tailwind behind ESG, a lot of excitement. But again, coming back to human psychology, it's this concept of, hey, you know what? I believe in this. I want to make impact. I get it. That's awesome. But also, you have to realize we have to be profitable. We have to build a business. It has to be, you know, successful and so forth. And I also understand the time horizons on ESG investing is a little longer than some typical. How does Elkstone and yourself as the chief investment officer, Carl, how do you look at that? And how do you navigate the ESG world right now? Definitely with there's so much excitement. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, I guess, from my personal hash there is essentially three different viewpoints right so one is for our company elkstone and its stakeholders the second is as an alternative investment manager essentially a product or fund creator um, how does esg impact that viewpoint and then thirdly and finally there's the private investment office and wealth management viewpoint as well um, quite different one as a fund producer or product provider, for lack of a better term, you're driving the narrative on ESG in terms of you're setting the criteria on, and filters of, uh, of how you want to navigate ESG for the investments that you're making through, through that vehicle. Now, of course, what comes into consideration is uh, the macros more wider who where the potential exits could come from, what criteria do they have because your product needs to align with their, with the exit criteria, etc. But on the other side, on the wealth management side, the manager versus the player, you're there to, to serve and build a customized portfolio for a high net worth individual. So from the ESG, from that viewpoint, it becomes as much educational as anything else. This is what ESG means. What does it mean to you? How do you want to go about navigating it? And then we can facilitate it from that standpoint. So really it's kind of an education, get to, get to know your investors, see what really ticks for them 
Um, and then it's about going out and finding a suitable product, uh, you know, raising things up to the 30,000 foot view. You know, we're kind of running before we're walking within ESG. It's an absolutely lovely thought and theory, but, you know, it's similar to, you know, you study in your master's and it's theory and then you go out into the real world and, you know, within your master's or within your undergraduate, you, you learn the CAPM model, you you get told that markets are rational and then you come out and you see everybody do their own thing and uh, sometimes there's some head-scratching investments that, that are made and you quickly realize that um, markets and people aren't rational we're not we're, we're not robotic um so it comes down to you know hey do you want to put your money into uh, investments that are doing good yes absolutely from a theoretical point of view but part of the education is bridging that gap in terms of that's a lovely thought but it's very broad let's go more granular and then let's also put a bridge between this is what the goal is, but what is the product set and product option available? And is there a match for suitable investments uh, to, to, to what an individual's personal mandate is? You know, I'm sure you've heard the expression one family office with one family office, very similar in ESG. There's tons of components within ES and G, and therefore it's very, very personal. And, and an ES, ESG mandate for one individual is going to be different for all the other individuals and therefore from a wealth management perspective it can't be a one-size-fits-all framework and setup that's needed it is a very much individual personal get to know you educate and, and let's go from there what a good analysis and because uh, there is this fine and, uh, line and you got to find that a silver lining if you will and that balance you mentioned something in the VC world I want to look back on where you said you want to gravitate away from capital intensive investments do you have that same thought with the ESG world because there are some deals that I looked at that are very capital intensive and even go to market it's like just the R&D side of thing is like five to seven years before you go to market and I can see that and but you have to take a big risk and I just want to see like obviously there are some individuals that are willing to you know you got the Bill Gates that you see that long 50-year timeline he's not looking to return investments etc right now so it's a different you know investor but I'm just curious you guys are looking obviously at a certain time horizon do you gravitate away from those capital intensive ESG impact investing thoughts yeah so as a rule of thumb, yes, but I'm going to speak both sides out of my mouth here, unfortunately. So as a as a rule of thumb, yes, but we have actually made an investment into uh, a, a company that lines up with with, with what you mentioned called, called Standard Gas, which is quite capital intensive. But if we're to take a step back um, and really think about ESG, I'm not personally, I'm not going to make an investment into ESG just because it says e ESG. Um, but there are a lot of industries and areas that I think an interesting supply demand dynamic picture is being created due to a tailwind of whether it's a component of E, S or G, uh, as an example, the green energy transition. Now, there's, you know, there's, I'll give you an example there. Uranium is a market that's, um, 
very, very interesting. Um, on the supply side, the price has been relatively low for a number of years, and therefore there's been a lack of investment on the supply infrastructure side. And again, it's not a turn the tap on and off. It's not like investment can be made today and you start producing supply tomorrow. There's a lag, but on the demand side, there's been a very immediate pickup. Um, uranium turned green in EU taxonomy recently, therefore it's a green energy source, part of the green energy transition, an increase on the demand side. Similarly, there's an increase on the demand side for supply security. And again, this was driven on the back of what happened in Russia, Ukraine and, and Germany's reliance on that gas coming from Russia. So you have these catalysts, these either supply or demand drivers that some are inherently linked uh, and fully driven by a component of ESG, but it leads to the industry as a whole being extremely interesting in setting up a mismatch in the supply and demand dynamics of that particular area or you know to give one other example agriculture is a really interesting you know area at a pure industry capitalist perspective a, a growing population everybody needs to eat there's a demand there's a huge demand for food there's going to be an increased demand for food and um fairly recession proof because regardless of the economic cycle everybody needs to eat now it also aligns very strongly with ESG through the UN sustainability development goals and food distribution and so on so there are some particular industries that you could look at from a pure capitalist perspective that are very um enticing but that's because part of the story is some of the either supply uh, d demand or supply side has got this big boost by some component of of, of ES and G and, and and certainly those are areas that align with with some people's goals and you're not taking diminishing returns um, in order to get access to them. What a great analysis a again great analysis because again, it's just because so it's important just so what important you talked about and how to navigate this because there is a lot of excitement and a lot of opportunity for growth and you've seen some that do have some tailwind and they do have some really established proof of concept but like you mentioned you have to think about it holistically and say hey and navigate this and that's why I really appreciate you being on here and talking to my audience but also just holistic about this subject because we see a lot of growth, but it's just really, there's a lot of opportunity that you don't want to deploy uh, and infuse capital with. Uh, Carl, I really appreciate you being on here, man, and what you're doing at Elkstone and what Elkstone's doing in Ireland and bringing it to my audience and sharing the, the amazing alignment in regards to the U.S. as well as Ireland and the opportunities and these hubs that you guys are creating and, and the innovation and the entrepreneurship that you guys are bringing. Uh, for those that want to reach out, that want to maybe deploy some capital with you, that want to learn a little bit more, I know you've obviously uh, featured on Forbes, quite a bit of different uh, articles. Um, but how do they reach out to you and be part of what you got going on, Carl? Yeah. Uh, anyway, lines are always open. You can either go direct to me via LinkedIn, send me an email at krogers, that's K R O G E R S, at elkstoneprivate.com. Uh, come out to our website, elkstonepartners.com. Um, yeah, all, all, all channels are open. Awesome, guys. Those links will be awesome, in the description guys, below, so you can take a look at all that. So Carl, I'd love to ask you before I let you go forward. Is there? You've done very well for yourself, very successful, chief investment officer, and obviously been able to work with incredible amount of high-level individuals. But if you think about that, young Carl, what insecurities did you have to overcome to become the successful, you know, investor and person you are now, Carl? 
It's an interesting one. I think um, many people's default is is of doubt as opposed to positivity. I remember one example when I was speaking with my career guidance counselor when I was 16 as an example, and I said, no, I want to go over to the States. Um, you know, to, to, to play tennis and do my undergrad over there and get a scholarship and get that opportunity. You know, I got I got warned against it. Nobody in the school uh, had ever done it before. But you had to get through that negatively and you had to get that drive. And that drive then took me on a plane when I was 18 years of old. old. Didn't know a single person uh, over, in the, over in the States. But five years later, you know, we ha had a degree, built an amazing network of people. Um, uh, ended up coming back again. I even remember, uh, you know, when I got, when I came back as well after doing my undergrad over in South Carolina, I ended up getting into the masters in, in Trinity uh, College Dublin, Ireland's top university. And there were some people with some doubt saying, "Hey, you gonna you gonna be able for this? Uh, not not too sure about it." Um, and that just drove me even more um, in terms of the fire in the belly. And again, that comes from sports, that comes from competitiveness. Um, it's one of the reasons I'll be throwing my kids in, in, into every sport. It's not just about winning and losing, but it's understanding the challenge, overcoming losses, learning, um, not wanting to see a B, not wanting to, to see a C, um, really that competitive edge that comes with it. and. One thing that I remember that always stood out because uh, part of my career, um, you know, I nearly felt like a, a parcel or, or, or a package. I lived in, I did four years in South Carolina, I did a year in Connecticut, I did a year and a half in Ireland, I did a year in Boston, two in Canada, a year in New York. And it was always a, you know, you, you hear a lot, if it's meant to be, it will happen. And I always hated that. I, I said, no, it's not just going to happen. You have to do something about it. You say, if this is my goal, I don't care how I'm going to get there. It might be a windy path, but I will get there. And you need that drive. You need that fire in your belly. It's not always going to be a, a, a straight path and nothing is going to land on your lap without going out and getting it. Um, I still, uh, I'll, I'll finish off here, but I'll give one example. Um, I... When moving back over to Boston, I I got an internship for for a prop trading firm. I don't think I ever I don't think I ever told the uh, the founder or the hiring manager who told me about this. So if if they're listening, it'll be the first time that they've heard. So when you finish a degree in Ireland, within twelve months, you're allowed to get a one year work visa over to over to the states. So I was told on a Tuesday evening, I think it was, that I received the scholarship. Uh, so I received the internship and work starts in Boston on the following Monday, six days, six days later, knowing full well I could never get a visa on time. I said, no problem, boss, see you there on Monday. Friday evening, I left it as late as possible because I didn't want to give them the opportunity to take on some something else. I called them to say, look, there's... Um, there's a delay uh, in the visa process. Loads of people are applying to head over um, for summer holidays or something like that, because uh, it was around it was around June time. And he said, "Okay, that's no problem, but can you be here the following Monday, one week later?" And again, I knew in my head 50-50 at best, but we said, "But I said yes." So I ended up going to the embassy on Tuesday, uh, getting approved the visa. I was told it would be mailed out. I asked them not to mail it out because it might not get there on time. I had a flight on Sunday I had to make. They said, no problem, 
come back to the embassy on Friday and, and physically pick up your, your visa. So I remember I was this was a week I was studying for the CFA Level 1 as well. So I was taking the CFA Level 1 on Saturday. On Friday morning, I get an email from a courier saying my pass, my passport or package is en route. So the, the embassy didn't hold it. They did, they did mail it out. I had to call up the courier, find out where they were, drove two or three hours down the country to pick it up on Friday, drove two or three hours back, took the exam on Saturday, flew to Boston on Sunday, and I made it to the internship on the Monday morning. But you know, those kind of things you have to be able to, to overcome and have the fire in your belly and drive to say, hey, this won't necessarily be a straight path. But if I believe it, if I'm competitive enough, if I believe I can do it, I will get there, even if you have to uh, lie about the delivery of a visa. What a great story about finding a vision and just destroying it and, and killing it and, and going through all the hurdles that life just What a great you. story so about finding a vision and just destroying it and killing it and going through all the hurdles that life just threw at you when you just overcame every single one of them. I love that. So I was going That's out awesome, with my girlfriend man. in Dublin really and guess where my ex is from, so we, I had that to add to the mix as well. Now, fortunately, uh, uh, I, I married my Irish girlfriend. We have a beautiful daughter, but that, that was an interesting spanner that got thrown into the works as well. That always makes it awkward, doesn't it? <laughs> That's awesome. Guys, that is my, uh, my friend. Gina that always makes Elvis it awkward, doesn't it? <laughs> Carl Rogers. That's awesome. Guys, that is my uh, my friend, the Chief Investment Officer at Elkstone, the one and only Carl Rogers. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Diva's podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can. <laughs>